This is Craig Brown, and welcome to Passages. Passages is a space to explore Bible passages used in churches for preaching, reflection, and prayer. My hope is that Passages will shine a unique light on text used in the lectionary in the coming weeks. Our passage for this week is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 34, through chapter 16, verse 13. It is the reading for the third Sunday after the Pentecost, also known as proper number six, in the year B cycle of the lectionary. It happens to be the lectionary reading for June 13th, 2021. This is a rich story we find in 1 Samuel about how David becomes anointed as king over Israel. In the lectionary readings, the reign of Saul is completely passed over for the most part. We move from the uh, text from the previous Sunday, where the people of Israel cry out for a king, to now the twilight of King Saul's reign in the beginning of the rise of David. Now, arguably, First Samuel and kings, for that matter, are about the rise of the Davidic dynasty. In other words, the dynasty of King David. So Saul is somewhat of a secondary figure, but yet this story occupies an important place in the transition between Saul and David. Saul is the first king over Israel, David as the second king. Now, in this particular text, I want to focus on a particular character, and that character in this text is God. There are some rich passages of scripture in this text that explore how God interacts with the prophet Samuel and how God engages in this process of transitioning the monarchy from Saul to David. We begin really at the end of chapter 15 in verses 34 and 35, and what we read there is something about how God regrets. God regrets. It's an interesting way this chapter concludes, focusing on regret and remorse. When we focus on how God regrets, we we have to really begin that with Saul as the first king over Israel. Now, when Saul was chosen, and you can read about this a couple of chapters earlier in 1 Samuel, he was chosen because he was the people's choice. He was tall. He was a military leader. He was the conventional choice to be the first monarch over Israel. And as the judge and prophet Samuel ages, he finds himself in the awkward position of being a transitional leader. He really is what is the final judge to rule over Israel, but in many ways, he's also its first prophet. Now, the episode unfolds in 1 Samuel chapter 15, where there's a battle that occurs between uh, Saul leading the Israelites against King Agag of the Amalekites. A lot of big words there. Don't worry about it. Basically, Saul's instructions are this that he is to take no spoils of the battle. In other words, don't take any of the treasure, don't take any of the possessions, don't take any of the people. The the text is actually somewhat bloody in that it says that everyone amongst the Amalekites are to be killed. Saul, at the end of the battle, is encouraged by his men to keep some of the spoils from the battle rather than destroying them. So he's kind of trapped between the, the conventional way one would wage war, in which case you would keep the spoils of the battle, versus the obedience uh, that he is called to engage in, which is the destruction of everything. And it's a really bloody episode between King Samuel, between Samuel and Agag at the end of the story. Agag is supposed to be killed, and Saul refuses to do it. And so Samuel does it for King Saul. 
Samuel tells them that the kingdom at this point has been torn from him. And this is so important in that Saul's reign ends in a figurative way as Samuel tells them his, his reign has now come to an end. Remember, Saul is the people's choice, and as such, he obeys the people. So when his soldiers come and tell him to keep the spoils of the battle, he does so. Now, I have to confess, you know, as a, an elder member of Generation X, I have a lot of cynicism about popularity and popular leadership. And what Saul really epitomizes is this conventional leadership quality. In other words, Saul conflates popularity with success, that somehow being popular is the, the equivalent of being successful. So if he's popular with all of his soldiers and the people, he must be successful as a monarch. And if he's successful, then he must be obedient. And Samuel tells him, far from it. He's failed to be obedient to what God has called him to do. And, and the kingdom of Israel has been torn now from him as Samuel tears his garments when he tells him this. The chapter ends with this really poignant lament. And it's probably... I think one of the most poignant laments in all of scripture. It says at the end of chapter 15 that Samuel grieved over Saul. And this word for grieved in Hebrew is the strongest word you could use for the word for sadness. Samuel is deeply grieved over what has happened with Saul. And then the chapter ends with this interesting verse where it says this, that the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. God regretted. Now, there's a whole lot of spin we could put on this text, but just let that word sit with us, regret. And that really opens up the key passageway for us in this text, that God feels the fullness of our grief and regret. The God that we follow is an empathetic God, not necessarily a sympathetic God. In sympathy, we feel for others. In empathy, we feel with them. And it's this empathy that drives the divine impulse, this sense of connection with our grieving and our regret and our remorse, ultimately, hopefully, leading to our repentance. But ultimately, God acts in love out of this empathy. So God feels the fullness of our grief and regret. And I think sometimes we forget the fact that that God is our companion in that. And this rich text from 1 Samuel 15 reminds us that, that God joins us in all of our grief and even our regrets. God's work in this story continues as we move into chapter 16 and as the page really begins to turn from King Saul to the emergence of David as monarch over Israel. The chapter opens with God selecting a new king. Whereas Saul was the selection of the people, this new king is going to be God's selection. And God's provision for this new king requires a step of faith on Samuel's part. He's supposed to go to Bethlehem, which is uh, near Jerusalem. And by the way, the word Bethlehem is bet, the Hebrew word for house, and lechem, the word for bread. So Bethlehem literally means house of bread. And when he gets there, he's to find a man named Jesse. And he's told one among Jesse's sons will be the new king to succeed Saul. So Samuel goes. He goes in obedience, even amid 
amid a, a real sense of uncertainty. He has no idea how this episode is going to turn out. And you see the contrast here, that Saul, as a king, would require certainty and conventionality, whereas Samuel goes to Bethlehem without any of those things. And it's, this selection of a new monarch isn't going to be anything at all like how Saul was named king. This is going to happen in an unusual way. Well, Samuel's worried about going to Bethlehem. I mean, after all, Israel does have a king named Saul at the time, so how is it going to look for Samuel to go to Bethlehem to anoint a new king when there's already a reigning one? And so Samuel's told to take a heifer with him, or a a cow, uh, to offer as a sacrifice. Because Saul would certainly get get word of this out-of-ordinary visit. In other words, why, why would the preeminent leader in all of Israel go to Bethlehem. His movements are being watched. And so God's economy here, or God's provision, involves, well, a little bit of deception that he's to take this heifer with him to offer as a sacrifice is kind of a ruse for the real reason why he's in Bethlehem. Uh, This kind of deception isn't new in scripture. Jesus tells us in very similar terms in the gospel of Matthew that when we're fasting, we're to to go out of our way to conceal it or to deceive others so that they wouldn't know that we're fasting or keeping some form of spiritual discipline. But you see, Samuel, in this case, he knows the mission, but he has no idea how it's going to work. And so when he arrives in Bethlehem, not only is he nervous about being there, but the elders in Bethlehem, they're also nervous about him being there. Why is Samuel here? What's happened? Why has the judge come to us? They suspect that they're going to be somehow judged inadequate in some way or that there's some crime that's been committed that they don't know about. And you see, all of this provision and all this protection isn't about Samuel. It's not about the elders in the city of Bethlehem. It's about protecting the provision of God's call. That God is ultimately at work in the story for something that is remarkable and is unconventional. And all of this provision and all of this protection is about that. And it simply covers Samuel and the elders of Bethlehem, incidentally. But this is really about what's going to happen at the house of Jesse. This really unlocks for me the second key passageway in this text. And it's a pithy proverb that was coined by Rick Warren, the pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California. He he said years ago this, where God guides, God provides. Yeah, I know it's pithy, but there's some deep truth hiding out in there that we need to listen to and we need to be careful of. You'll see provision in the case of Samuel or the elders of Bethlehem, it, it doesn't look like comfort or convention. It doesn't look like something that's easy. In other words, that if we just do what God calls us to do, everything is going to be wonderful and there will be rainbows and unicorns. That's not how this is working. Provision here is about the revealing of Israel's king as God's anointed. That's the provision. So that's what God is going to provide. And God is guiding Samuel through that process. So when God's leading is trusted, God will always provide the outcome. We have to be careful to not assume that we know the outcome because God sees something that we cannot or perhaps will not ever see. Where God guides, God provides. I think it's a true statement, pithy as it might be, but 
we have to remember this is about God's movement, not our movement. As the story works to its climax, we find that God now perceives something quite clearly that no one else in the story has perceived up until this point, and even for us as the reader, haven't quite perceived. That when Samuel arrives at Jesse's house and he begins to interview all of his sons, they come in one at a time, one after another, and as soon as Samuel sees the first son, he says, oh, this has to be the anointed of the Lord, and God says, nope, that's not him. And, and a warning is given to Samuel about how unconventional God's vision really is. And it's in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, and it's a very well-known verse from this passage of Scripture. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his, in other words, the eldest son's, appearance or at the height of his stature. This is a deliberate contrast with King Saul. The Lord goes on to say, Because I have rejected him. For God sees not as a human sees. For humans look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Such an important passage of scripture, a pivotal text, and it really is going to come to define David's leadership. Jesse ends up parading seven of his sons before Samuel, and none of them are the Lord's anointed. Until finally Samuel says at the end of the story, do you have any other sons? And Jesse says, well, I have one other young son who's out tending the sheep. See, God's vision for David and God's vision for that anointing that could be upon him is something that his own father, Jesse, could not see. God's vision is unconventional. God could see something in David that even Jesse, the father, couldn't see in his own son. Not only is God's vision unconventional, but God's power in this story is so unprecedented. And there's this rich contrast between Saul and David, even at the beginning of this story. When Saul was chosen to be king, he was the people's choice. He was strong and tall. He was the leader. He epitomized all of these characteristics they thought were intrinsic to fantastic leadership. And Saul, for his part, he becomes drunk on the fantasy of himself as a leader. And his self-indulgence, his narcissism, his self-centeredness, ultimately, well, it leads him into madness at the end of his life. You see, Saul is conventional. He's pedigreed. He's prepared. He fits convention. David, on the other hand, at this point at least, he has no qualifications. He has no merit. He has no external validation. He has no potential. Even his own father couldn't see the potential. David will go through his entire life knowing that it is God's power alone that sustains his reign and rule. And there's going to be moments where David is going to forget this truth. He's going to have an episode later when he gets carried away with himself in the brutal murder of a man in order to take his wife. Her name was Bathsheba. And then David's own broken relationship with his own son, Absalom, that comes to a head much later in 2 uh, Samuel. These are moments of tremendous brokenness in David's life. It's that brokenness that emerges from his lack of attention to what God has done in him. But eventually he'll return to it. He'll return to this truth in a rich way. There's a beautiful story in 1 Kings in the opening chapter where 
where David is dying and he's handing the reign over to his son Solomon and he gives him a beautiful speech and tells his son Solomon in this, in this, uh, this oracle in 1 Kings that he is always to maintain the primacy or the importance of the Lord and love for the Lord and obedience to the Lord and how critical that is. So David will come back to this at the end of his life. But this is about God's power that if David is so unqualified for this role, the only way he could uh, uh, attain it would be but by the power of God. You see, God's choice reveals God's vision and power. David can claim no merit, no pedigree, or privilege. He is actually unconventional. He is disenfranchised. He's not even one of the seven sons Jesse brings before Samuel, when he comes, David is marginalized. He's out taking care of the sheep. It doesn't even occur to Jesse to bring him in. And how quickly Jesse's memory fades. Have they forgotten that Jesse's father, Obed, was the son of Boaz and the Moabite leader, Ruth? Jesse's forgotten this this rich heritage of which he's a part of God's saving grace and power that occurred in his grandparents, Boaz and Ruth, who then had a child, Obed, whose Obed's son would be Jesse, and Jesse's son would be David. Ruth, the Moabite, is part of David's lineage. You see, here's the, the deal. This has to be curated. We cannot forget the witness of God's power and grace. Because this really unlocks the final passageway, key passageway for us today. That God's vision disrupts the status quo. You see, God's vision of every human heart should humble us. All of the work we do, and all of the work even in this story that Samuel did, that that Jesse did, that even Saul did, of assumption, of judgment, of conventionality, it, it ultimately leads us to a very deep sin, which is the rejection of the hand and work of God in the life of other people. God's calling upon people glorifies God and lifts everyone up. And God's unique vision reveals God's infinite and unending love. The way God can see this truth in David is so powerful, so compelling. It should move us deeply. You see, this episode, this entire story, is about God's strange economy of human potential. It's the story of David's anointing, and it's a powerful story. But it's not powerful because of David. It's powerful because of God. You see, ethical leadership begins with an understanding of who we are in Christ. And it only continues by never forgetting it. That's all for this week. I bid all of you grace and look forward to next week's episode as we focus on a classic children's story that's actually more made for adults, David and Goliath. I bid you all grace. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.